Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Lancet Digital Health Podcast. I am Dr Lucy Dunbar, a senior editor at The Journal, and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr Mamatha Bhatt, a hepatologist and clinician scientist from the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada, who will be chatting to us today about her team's research on the development and testing of deep learning algorithms in predicting graft fibrosis following liver transplantation. And their group study will be published in our July 2023 issue and online, so please keep an eye out for that. Mamatha, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your research today. I wonder if you can start by explaining your group's inspiration for the study and specifically, what problems did you see that you thought you might be able to address with this research? Sure. Thank you so much, Lucy, uh, for the kind invitation to participate in this podcast and uh, share our study's findings. So I'm a clinician scientist uh, and hepatologist in the liver transplant program in Toronto. And I I saw this as uh, a clinical area of need based on my interactions with patients and my experience uh, in the transplant clinic. You know, I I thought that uh, machine learning algorithms could best simulate the complex subconscious predictions we make in the clinic for an individual patient. There's so many patterns and complex uh, nonlinear interrelationships that we see on blood test results and various clinical variables. And uh, for this specific clinical question of graft fibrosis, I felt that machine learning tools incorporating and integrating longitudinal data would be most suitable. Um, I actually now co-lead the Transplant AI Initiative in our transplant program, and we're actually driving the deployment of machine learning tools into the clinical setting. So we're really excited, ultimately, to translate these tools into the clinical setting and be able to bring them to the patient and really optimize uh, our patient's outcomes and health after transplant. So really, in the end, my research questions have been most inspired by my interaction with patients. And uh, an important area of need that I saw was long-term outcomes after liver transplantation, which haven't actually improved over the last 30 years. Beyond a a year, those long-term outcomes have not improved. And so we'd like to ensure that transplant recipients are able to make the most of their second life, their life after transplant. Now, specifically coming to this study, graft cirrhosis is the cause for compromised long-term survival in 25% of liver transplant recipients. And it arises due to different causes such as rejection, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or fatty liver disease, infection, and various other reasons. And scarring, significant scarring of the liver graft arises in 37% of patients. And we're unable to predict this in an individualized manner. So the real area of need is to be able to predict this insidious onset of scarring in the liver, which we actually don't realize in clinical practice. And if we were able to appreciate that, we might be able to modify patients' trajectories. And so really with our new methodology that incorporates longitudinal data taking into account the considerations in uh, the liver transplant uh, practice, I wanted to really work towards personalizing care by identifying the modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors that drive scarring, fibrosis in an individual patient so that we could change their trajectories after uh, transplant. 
Thank you very much. I wonder if you can now tell us about the findings of your study and how they add to the literature. Sure. Um, so we trained various machine learning algorithms, including uh, uh, deep algorithms and our novel weighted long short-term memory network, so LSTM. It, it's now called weighted LSTM on longitudinal data to predict the risk of significant fibrosis in liver transplant recipients. So we had over 167,000 longitudinal data points to train on, and uh, this represented over 1,890 patients who had undergone a liver biopsy uh, post-transplant. And so we uh, trained and tested by dividing this data set into 70% training and 30% test so as to train on those longitudinal data points to uh, predict the presence of significant uh, fibrosis or significant scarring in the liver graft. And our weighted LSTM model was able to diagnose significant fibrosis more effectively as compared to the LSTM, which, uh, which is unweighted, as well as other deep learning models such as recurrent neural network, temporal convolutional network, and uh, machine learning models that take into account, uh, say, just the static data uh, at the time of biopsy. So we also looked at um, uh, conventional uh, supervised ML models, uh, including random forest support vector machines, uh, etc. And then we also compared to a standard fibrosis biomarkers such as the APRI. So this is the aspartate amino transferase to platelet ratio index and the fibrosis 4 index or FIB4. And uh, finally, also with uh, transient elastography in a subset of patients. And ultimately, uh, as I mentioned, our weighted LSTM model um, consistently outperformed the other methods uh, with an AUC of 0.798 in comparison to the unweighted LSTM, which had an AUC of 0.761, uh, FIB4 at 0.65, and APRI at 0.68. And this was in the diagnosis of stage two or greater uh, fibrosis in the graft. Uh, finally, we also uh, looked at a subgroup of patients with transient elastography having been performed um, within uh, a year of the biopsy and uh, weighted LSTM was not significantly better at detecting fibrosis than transient elastography. In the end, we're also able to project into the future as well to uh, ultimately predict for a given individual what their risk of fibrosis will be in the longer term. And what is particularly uh, attractive or interesting to me is that uh, we have these variables that are generated. So a list of variables that can be generated for an individual patient to say, what are the reasons for which this patient has developed significant scarring and is at risk for further scarring of their liver. So for the overall population, uh, we found that recipient age, the primary indication for transplant, donor age, and uh, longitudinal data for the liver enzymes and bilirubin and platelets were all significantly predictive for the overall population. But then if you look at individual patients, you can also identify that say, the type of immunosuppression and the level of immunosuppression in their blood are also predictive factors in individual patients. And that's what's particularly interesting to me as a practitioner taking care of these patients in that we can uh, try to personalize for a given patient so that we can then modify their trajectory and uh, help them 
live an optimal life uh, post-transplant. That's great. Thank you. So you mentioned the long short-term memory network model that you use to handle variability for missing values. So I wonder if you can briefly explain how that works for our listeners and maybe describe how it compares to other models that are out there. Sure. Uh, so the long short-term memory network models are very popular in general in text data applications where we have sequential data, such as sentences that are dependent on each other. So if you extend the same idea to longitudinal clinical data, the LSTM model will take into account this longitudinal data as input over multiple long short-term memory units. So it can e extract clinical features uh, not only from one time point, but also takes into account the previous time points. Each LSTM unit has two inputs, so the current time point input data, as well as the last time points data. And so you preserve dependency across time and finally produce an output at the last available time point. So then with weighted LSTM, which is the new methodology that uh, our group has developed, uh, we have tweaked the learning function in a regular long short-term memory network. For the two classes we are learning, so significant fibrosis, which is the cases, versus not, so um, without significant fibrosis, so minimal or no fibrosis, we then introduce two weights such that the class with a small number of samples, which was the cases in our data, was given more weight in the learning. And this ensures that the network training sees enough cases in comparison to controls so that the learning is unbiased and proper. And further, our area under the curve results actually justified that this weighting helped us in training better. So overall, our method is advantageous also in handling missing values, as it doesn't need to do any imputation or approximation of missing data. So it only uses the data that is available. Where data is missing, so if there are time points where data is missing, it simply takes the dependency from the last available time point. So overall, this is better as compared to other machine learning models handling miss missing data for the specific question, given that those other models will either consider a subset of data that is complete, in turn losing a lot of data points, or they focus on approximation of missing data, which can lead to erroneous or spurious findings. So I would say overall, our method really caters to the situation where we're looking at longitudinal data and there is uh, a relatively small number of samples in relation to the controls. Thank you very much for, uh, for explaining the advantages of using um, a tool like the one that you've developed for this study. So leading on from that, a really important question for us and for our listeners is how a tool like yours can be integrated into the clinical workflow. Are there any barriers that people working on this, such as data scientists, clinicians like yourself, perhaps regulatory bodies, need to overcome first in order for implementation in the clinic? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I co-lead our transplant AI initiative. And uh, this is an initiative that has been uh, supported by our transplant program um, as, uh, say, our forward-thinking uh, vision uh, for the deployment of uh, machine learning tools in the transplant uh, clinic. And really, uh, I think 
as I mentioned earlier, our patients have such a complex history and uh, so many individual considerations that need to be taken into account, whether it's from the clinical history side or different test results, as I mentioned. And so uh, machine learning tools are so you know, conducive to deciphering that complexity and coming up with predictions that can be individualized to a patient. So as a next step, really, uh, given that I co-lead this Transplant AI initiative, we've been working very closely with our chief data scientist uh, at the University Health Network to uh, develop the infrastructure for deployment of machine learning tools, including this one. And basically, we have the front end, uh, which is the dashboard uh, designed and developed using input from uh, colleagues and uh, individuals involved in the care of transplant patients, as well as transplant patient partners themselves. And really, we want to create dashboards and the infrastructure that will be conducive to use in the clinical setting. Um, so we also have the back end or the data engineering uh, that has been developed to allow for the flow of data from our electronic medical record system to a cloud, and then finally from the cloud to our dashboard. So that is clickable from our EMR or electronic medical record system. And uh, ultimately, we have these variables uh, that are concrete data points, such as clinical and laboratory data over time which are easier to retrieve in an automated way and feed into our algorithms to generate personalized predictions. And I really think that, you know, this is the way of the future so that we can ensure personalized care and uh, change trajectories of patients, uh, uh, whether it's in the transplant setting or in other settings. In terms of barriers, I think you know, I think it's really important to involve all the different uh, parties who have an interest in the success of such approaches in, uh, in care, in the clinical care. And this is why I think patient partners are uh, essential to involve uh, along with all the different, uh, say, healthcare personnel, as well as the data scientists who are critical to actually allow for the operationalization. So it involves a variety of skill sets and uh, parties to really drive implementation into the clinical setting. I think overall for uh, tools such as this in the transplant clinic, this also offers the opportunity for patients to feel empowered in their care. So they can really understand you know, what it is about a certain prediction and the factors that in their case specifically increase or decrease that risk of outcome. And what can they do themselves to change their future? And uh, so I think this really has the potential to empower them in their care and feel a sense of control in how they can modify their destiny. Yeah, thank you. I think that's so important that you've mentioned patient empowerment because it's, it's closely linked to patient outcomes. So very, very important. And I'm pleased to hear that that's at the forefront of your plans. You talked about some of the advantages that your study has, such as the use of the weighted network model and the longitudinal data set. But I wonder if you can mention any limitations that your study had. Yes, uh, so admittedly, there are limitations to our study. Uh, I think uh, one is uh, the absence of cross-center validation. So this is, I think, part of future steps to verify the robustness of our algorithm. 
And certainly this is the case for any machine learning algorithms. I think it's important to see how well they validate across different centers and what it is about the different environmental circumstances that may uh, improve or decrease the performance of the algorithm in a given setting. And then fine tune those algorithms for that given environment and considering those environmental factors. Additionally, uh, long short-term memory networks, like other neural networks, do require a longer computation time than simpler uh, conventional ML models. And so uh, we have used, uh, in our case, higher performance computers to train and uh, produce our predictions on new test data in a very short time. But certainly, uh, such uh, neural networks are computationally intensive. Additionally, we did use liver biopsy as the reference method that does have established limitations, but it is our gold standard at this point. And this includes, say, intra-observer and intra-observer variability in the interpretation of liver biopsies, which could have affected the accuracy of model training. Um, additionally, I think uh, there is scope to improve sensitivity and specificity further with the availability of more data overall. And the prospective uh, validation, I think, will be very important as we deploy the, this algorithm uh, into the clinical setting. Great. Thank you so much. And finally, our last question for today. What questions do you feel remain unanswered? And what should the priorities be for future research in this area? Yes, I think... You know, overall, uh, any machine learning algorithm, as, as I mentioned, that's developed uh, should, should be deployed and prospectively validated to see if it is truly able to change a patient's trajectory. And I think, you know, evaluating human factors in the uptake of an algorithm, uh, some qualitative research and human design aspects need to be considered uh, when we look at the uptake of a machine learning algorithm in clinical practice. Uh, additionally, seeing how patients can interface with such dashboards to feel empowered in their own health, I think, is also a critical element. So uh, overall, really, we need to work towards gaining the trust of uh, physicians as well as patients, and that will only happen once we uh, make efforts to, say, deploy these algorithms in the clinic and assess what are their advantages and disadvantages, and you know how uh, this can truly have an impact on clinical care and outcomes. And I think overall, it's very important to create that trust and awareness uh, and education about uh, the potential of uh, such tools uh, in the clinical setting. That's great, thank you. There's a lot to do, but I think it sounds like we're on the right track. So I really look forward to hearing what's next in store for the field and field group. So that's everything we can cover today. So thank you again so much, Bamatha, for this discussion about your exciting research. Thank you so much, Lucy. As a reminder, you can find Mamatha and her co-author's study in the July issue of The Lancet Digital Health. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you can join us next time. <laughs>